0: This is We Lead, presented by Voices of Public Health, the JSI podcast. The women who lead JSI's global health programs come from all walks of life. Their stories are as diverse as the countries where they work and the people they serve. In this series, we'll hear from women in leadership at JSI to learn more about their personal and professional journeys and what they've discovered along the way. Hi, everyone. I'm Amelia Kariannis, a program officer in JSI's International Division. Thanks for tuning in today. On today's episode of We Lead, we're talking with Dr. Nabila Ali. Dr. Nabila is JSI's country representative for Pakistan and leads the USAID-supported integrated health system strengthening and service delivery project. She has helped design numerous national level maternal, newborn, and child health policies and has managed large public health programs that have helped strengthen Pakistan's health system. Dr. Nabila is globally recognized for generating evidence to inform public health policies and programs, such as using the antiseptic chlorhexidine to improve newborn umbilical cord care, saving thousands of newborn lives. She is also a medical doctor by training. Dr. Nabila joins us today from Islamabad. Hi, Dr. Nabila, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Amelia. thank you for your intro. Obviously,
0: you've had an impressive professional career, but before we get too much into that, Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who is Dr. Nabila? How would your family and friends describe you?
1: Thank you, Emilia. Nabila is a humble person who likes to work hard with dedication to the cause. And I like to celebrate achievements, even if they are small. At the same time, I accept my mistakes and learn from them. I am a family person and enjoy the support and love of my husband and my children. Uh, Besides my family, I have very sincere friends and colleagues who keep giving me very candid feedback so that I have my two feet on the ground.
0: (laughs) That's great to hear. It sounds like you have some wonderful people supporting you in your life, both professionally and personally. I read from your bio that your father was passionate about girls' education, especially for his daughters. Would you say that he was unique in that opinion at the time? And also how important to you was it that your father supported you in gaining an education?
1: Emilia, I was lucky to have parents who valued daughters and sons equally. We are two brothers and two sisters. And when it came to my and my sister's education, my father took keen interest and guided us each step of the way to pick our career and provided resources and opportunities to get in the best medical college as he wanted to, uh, both sisters to become doctors. In those days, girls were getting married at an early age of 17 and 18. My father supported us to complete our education. So that was really important to us. And
0: whose idea was it to, to enter medicine? Was that your idea or your parents' idea?
1: To be honest, my parents, they, uh, you know, they were like, uh, they didn't force us. But at the same time, in those days, there were two professions, you know, which were seen and uh, considered prestigious. One was teaching and the other was to become a doctor. So it was, I guess, a joint uh, decision to go in the medical field.
0: So you did begin your career as a medical practitioner and spent several years on that path. What was it that motivated you to move away from medical practice and towards public health programming?
1: Yes, that is correct. I was passionate about my work on clinical side and wanted to build my career in surgery. I always wanted to be a surgeon and I really enjoyed that. In late 80s, I was on family way and it was difficult for me to do justice with my duties in anesthesia department and operation theater. So my friends, they suggested me to get a posting in a primary healthcare facility, which is in rural areas where normally doctors go for a few hours and there are no emergency duties to perform. But in my case, it was other way around. I started enjoying my work and felt the real need is in rural areas where access to health services is limited. Most women medical officers that do not even opt for rural health centers. As a result, the utilization of health facilities remains sub-optimal. That is how my career started in public health in 1990, and I never looked back. Although I feel that preventive and clinical services are equally important, but public health requires attention in all aspects. Realistic planning, preparing strategies and policies, and allocation of uh, budgets so that women and children and uh, men, you know, they can get uh, the services that's their right. And I'm very happy to have contributed in implementation of successful initiatives in Pakistan that led to policy formulation like National Program on Skilled Birth Attendance and Chlorhexidine National Scale-Up.
0: Would you say that you have a strong preference for the work you do now then? Could you ever see yourself practicing medicine again or are you happy where you are?
1: Absolutely. I'm very, very happy where I am because uh, I realized that this is where I belong because I'm people's person. I like to interact with people. I like to talk to people, you know, and uh, see uh, what I can do for them. And I think the chances of... uh, Uh, performing and uh, providing services close to humanity and the community is where public health comes in. And I'm very happy that I am in in this uh, sector.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about your experience working in rural parts of Pakistan? Obviously, there were parts of that experience that motivated you to move towards public health programming. Do you have any stories or experiences that kind of show
1: why that shift happened in your career? Oh, Amelia, there are many stories that I can share with you. I think I saw the plight of women and children. It was heartbreaking to see a newborn die of birth asphyxia as the nearest health facility where the healthcare providers who had skills to resuscitate the baby were three to four hours away. On top of that, the transport challenges and the time lost in making decision by the traditional birth attendant to take the baby to a tertiary care hospital. The baby was dead by that time. Likewise, in case of women who deliver at home in rural areas and end up with excessive bleeding, they die on the way to hospital as she has just two hours between life and death. These are all needless deaths and can be saved. So when I looked at all of that, I realized that uh, we need more doctors, we need more nurses and lady health workers in rural areas so that we can cater to their uh, sufferings and uh, provide them quality services.
0: I can't imagine how heartbreaking some of those things were to see. It's obvious to me that you are someone who possesses empathy based on your reaction to some of the experiences that you just described. How do you think that empathy plays into our careers as public health professionals? Is it an essential quality of medical professionals or public health workers?
1: Actually, it is part of the oath that all doctors and uh, medical professionals, you know, they have to take at the time when they start their uh, practice. But empathy, if we look at it, is a characteristic of every human being. It is capacity to understand or feel what another person is experiencing, It is essential for health professionals as there is no medicine to cure emotions or hurt or neglect and deprivation. We cannot understand the sufferings of others unless we put ourselves in their shoes. This requires good listening skills and assurance to patient or client that you understand their situation. And if you have done that, then half of their, uh, uh, you know, miseries, they are gone. They feel that uh, we can feel how they are uh, and in what condition they are, what are they going through. So in my experience, at times when a pregnant woman would come to the health center with her mother-in-law, I used to meet them separately. The request of daughter-in-law was always to explain to her mother-in-law that she needs rest during the day as it is her last trimester, or she has other kids to look after, or she has to cook food, Whereas the mother-in-law would complain that she does not help me in household chores. She would say, when I was expecting, I never said no to my mother-in-law. So you you understand how the situation was, but after counseling both the daughter-in-law and the mother-in-law, they would both agree to look after each other. So it was not just the medicine that satisfied the patients and clients. It was listening to them and counseling as well.
0: That's kind of an amazing anecdote that you just provided because I think it has to do with kind of the behavior change aspect of public health as well, not only the medicine. Um, I was originally going to ask if you had a lot of pushback from those mother-in-laws that you mentioned, but it seems that you were able to find some common ground between the two in order to lead to a more successful birth for both the mother and
1: the baby. So Emilia, I try to find a common ground. And I would always talk to the mother-in-law that see if your daughter-in-law gets some time to rest, it is in your favor because then your grandchildren, you know, they'll be healthier and you will be happy to see them running around rather than having low birth weight babies and all. So I would uh, always uh, give them an example that would turn out to be in their favor. (laughs) So that worked well.
0: That's a really great strategy. Would you say that some of those attitudes have changed um, all these years later?
1: They have, because you know, I'm talking of like uh, 35, 30 years back. But uh, now the times have changed. Now the mother-in-law is also educated, you know, and uh, uh, she has also worked in, uh, during her, uh, you know, young age, and she understands that how it is difficult to take care of uh, younger children. So I guess the mother-in-law and uh, the daughter-in-laws, they are very friendly. And that is exactly the case in case of my two daughter-in-laws. We are like friends.
0: That's great to hear. So building off of that, you mentioned something in your bio that I found very interesting. You said that public health is a science and an art. I think that many view science and art as opposing forces. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you meant by that? Yes,
1: I strongly believe that public health is science and an art as it requires management of health problem where we give medicines and perform surgery at the same time public health is also lifestyle so uh, there is a strong preventive aspect to the overall management for instance look at the heart diseases or the diabetes or uh, you know birth spacing all of them they require lifestyle change it's not just the medicines that uh, that will cure the patient. So this aspect of health is the art as it requires behavior change to achieve holistic health. Even if we look at the definition of health, it is social, mental, and physical well-being. I will share how in one of JSI's project, Pakistan Initiative for Mothers and Newborns, we combined the science and the art. So USAID towards the very end of the project added family planning component to our scope of work. And uh, my team and myself, after careful thinking and deliberations on which interventions to introduce to have impact in shortest possible time, so we decided to make a commercial movie on issues like son preference, two close pregnancies, health of mother and child, girl child education as one of the intervention because this is uh, something which is very prevalent in Southeast Asia. So we thought that through enter education, we can send the message across. It is a long story, but in the end, we were successful in convincing USAID to sponsor a commercial movie called Bowl, which turned out to be a success and was shown in several countries, in academic institutions, and is also archived in libraries of public health institutions i even saw it in qatar airways coming to us you know so i believe healthcare is both science and an art
0: and i assume that you starred in that movie right dr nabila
1: <laughs> no i, I was <laughs> i was the uh, uh, i was the director there in that movie but uh, yeah provided all the technical background
0: That's such an interesting way to be able to use your creativity when your original training was much more science-based. I love that you get to use both of those things in your professional career now, and I'm sure that it's had great impacts on, on the individuals that you work with.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Can you share one or more of your favorite stories or experiences from your professional life?
1: Yes, there are many stories, you know, and because during my 36 years of service, Uh, I have come across many experiences. There's one particular incident that I still remember. During the planning phase of one of the projects that I led, we went to Interior Sindh to a project district, Dadu. It's a rural district. I was told there is an area within that district where due to law and order situation, the health services are non-existent. And women and children, they die as for almost four to five months in a year, that geographic area gets cut off from the main district due to floods and the health center is being used as a stable. So that was really difficult for me to absorb. So I decided to go and see for myself the situation and design a program for that area to save mothers and newborns lives. But to my surprise, the health center had no doors and windows and there were no healthcare providers. So we immediately called the community elders and listened to their demands. At the end of the day, it was a joint venture of community district government and USAID project led by JSI, And we came up with intervention so that that health center can become functional 24 hours, seven days a week. The government provided two skilled birth attendants who were then residing in the residential quarters And JSI, through USAID funding, provided an ambulance, built the capacity of the healthcare providers, and provided the relevant equipment. So the center started working. And the community took the responsibility for the safety and security of the staff there. What touched my heart was the local community. They planted a tree in the compound of the health center and put a plaque with my name on it, I mean, when I went there 10 years later, it has grown into a big tree now. And at that time, the first baby girl who was born in that facility was named Nabila. So you see, the community owned the health center and guarded the health center with their life. And the ambulance that we gave them, uh, when Benazir Bhutto, our prime minister, was assassinated, there were riots all over Sindh. And uh, people, you know, came with uh, sticks in their hands and uh, they smashed even the government ambulances. But they spared the ambulance which was given by JSI and USAID because they said, "No, we planned to make this facility operational, and this is our ambulance, and we cannot, uh, you know, damage that." So this, this was this was really nice, and I always remember. Uh, the day that we went there and then afterwards how the uh, services started uh, were being provided to the community over there and how satisfied and happy they were.
0: That's amazing to hear the the impact that you have had on that community. and, And it's beautiful to hear that there's a tree planted in your name there. Have you
1: been back recently to visit that community? I'll be honest, the last visit was like seven years ago. But that's a very good uh, idea. I think I should go and revisit and see in which condition that health facility is now.
0: I'm sure that it did have such a big impact on so many people's lives. So, while that was such a lovely story, we do know that no journey is without challenges and obstacles. Can you tell us about one or more challenges that you faced as a woman leader in public health?
1: I have yet to see a journey, in this case, you know, career without challenges. But if you are a woman leader, the challenges are compounded, especially in the developing countries. To have a male leader is considered the norm. If a woman becomes, you know, or makes it to that position, people, your own peers, they consider it as a favor done. So that is not a very good feeling, you know. But I want to share with you, in 1998, I got selected after a rigorous open competition for a position as chief executive officer for one of the 10 districts that got autonomous status in Punjab. There were three rounds of interviews and the last one was by the chief minister of Punjab himself. I was the first one to get selected the youngest candidate and female besides men who had served against many leadership positions. So on a lighter note, on the first day of our orientation, They all laughed at me and even asked me to go home and play. But later, we all became friends and I used to teach them how to prepare PowerPoint presentations and they were not, you know, computer friendly. So they welcomed my support. So that's how I made my way and entry into the leadership position.
0: That's great to hear that even after the initial reaction, the men that you were working with ended up becoming friends of yours. Do you think that that experience that they had with you then kind of trickled down into their own families and their other interactions that they had with women in the professional setting?
1: I think I met their families and their daughters later on, and uh, they were they were very thankful to me. They said that their attitudes have changed, you know, <laughs> when they have started uh, accepting us and they have, they're encouraging us to go into uh, professional uh, careers so that was, that was really good, you know, to see the change, behavior change in them.
0: So that all being said, how important is it to encourage young girls and women to pursue education?
1: Well, Amelia, girls' education is extremely important as they are the first teachers of their kids. And research has also shown that if mother is educated, she will make sure that her children are educated. In Pakistan, uh, women constitute 48% of the population educated women can join workforce and they can contribute to the economy of the country. Uh, so the times have changed. you know. When I started my career in 1985 and when I look now, there are many opportunities uh, uh, available for young girls, uh, both in public and uh, private organizations, because they encourage women you know, uh, to apply. And the affirmative action that they take is provide them with pick and drop service so that uh, there are no excuses, you know, that their parents or family members can make that how they will go to the office and things like that. So times have changed and uh, it's very heartening to see girls coming forward in different walks of life.
0: And do you think it's equally important to teach young boys the importance of girls'
1: education? Absolutely, because you see these young boys, they're going to become uh, the brothers and then the husbands, you know, of uh, young girls. And it's important uh, for parents to teach their their sons, you know, uh, that uh, women are equally important and uh, they should be encouraged and uh, they are uh, equal members of the household.
0: So what are some examples of things that you say to your own children to encourage this type of learning?
1: Well, my sons, they are outliers. <laughs> you know, they they <laughs> really respect their wives and their sister and uh, their mother, anyone for that matter. I, I always feel so happy, you know, that they are so respectful towards uh, women. And uh, uh, my daughter has a young, uh, you know, daughter, like she's about two years old. But uh, I see my son-in-law, you know, pampering her. And uh, I can tell that uh, when they will grow, they will have all the opportunities uh, in the world that boys can get. So it's a very, very uh, good feeling.
0: Can you speak a little bit more about your own journey to leadership? Are there any lessons that you've learned to become an effective leader? And on the flip side, any mistakes that you, you would say that you've made?
1: If I look back, I was always supported by men in my life. And I want to thank all of them for that. Starting from my father, my brothers, my husband, and my sons, I found even my colleagues who supported me and my seniors who gave me confidence and courage uh, that I am no less. So I feel that I was lucky uh, to have them around me. In my country, Pakistan, we had the first woman prime minister the first woman Speaker of National Assembly, and now we have the first Surgeon General in Army. These are unprecedented experiences, but times have changed. In my case, I've managed project for the last 21 years in leadership role. I found very respectful colleagues and subordinates who have always supported me, and I can't thank them enough. I never hit the glass ceiling, I would say. I got opportunities and uh, uh, I found ways, you know, uh, and everybody supported me. But to become an effective leader, one should groom the subordinates and provide opportunities to them to be future leaders. And always listen to the advice of, you know, your peers and your team members as we achieve more if we work as a team. I've also learned that to become effective leader, we need to be assertive, and do not shy away to take tough decisions because in leadership positions you have to take tough decisions there you cannot say oh i am a female and you know i can't take such decisions if you have to for example fire someone so so these are areas where you know uh, if you are in a leadership role you have to build your capacity in that but at the same time i've made several mistakes I believed people what they portrayed themselves to be. But at times I had to suffer because of that. And I've made many mistakes, as I said, but I always learned from my mistakes.
0: The key element is to learn from those mistakes, right? Do you practice mentorship with any of your either subordinates or or young people currently?
1: I do. And I tell them, you know, uh, guide them uh, for their future and their career And uh, I still remember there was a leadership program that Population Council used to have. And uh, they would invite us as uh, leaders, you know, to talk to uh, young professionals, how they can excel uh, in their own respective fields. And I love that. So what do you think is
0: next for you? Would you ever consider teaching or moving out of the profession that you're in now?
1: Well, I think during, uh, in my mid-career, I was teaching Master's Public Health at Health Services Academy, and I have lots and lots of students, you know, all over Pakistan, and that was such a good feeling. And uh, yeah, I love teaching, and um, I can continue with that. Even now, I am adjunct faculty for uh, two institutions in Pakistan, And uh, I enjoy teaching whenever they call uh, me for a session. I never say no to that because, as I said, that I enjoy doing that.
0: It sounds like you're a busy person then. Do you ever have any free time?
1: Yes. I love socializing and uh, I like to enjoy my life. I take holidays. I spend time with my family. And um, you know, I go to parties, it's not just work. So I like to mix work and uh, social life, but create a balance between that.
0: Definitely, and if you enjoy your work and enjoy your life outside of work, I think that's the key to a happy life. Yes, that's true. What is your biggest public health concern for the future? Either in your technical area, in Pakistan or countries you've worked in, or for humankind as a whole, more generally?
1: Amelia, in my view, the biggest public health concern for the future is ever-increasing population and climate change. In near future, we will face food and water scarcity. And that really scares me, because then we are going to face the adverse effects of deforestation, environmental pollution, and all the ailments as a result of overpopulation. Are you hopeful, though?
0: I know that there's a lot of initiatives related to climate change. Are you hopeful that that we can see a change in our lifetime?
1: Well, I'm a very optimist person, but uh, I'll be very honest. The pace at which the population is increasing, it will become very difficult, you know, because people, if they do not get jobs and if they, uh, you know, if their social needs are not met, then they're bound to do things stuff like deforestation as i said which will lead to flooding and all and then that will lead to um, other uh, uh, suffering so i i hope we do more because we are not doing uh, as we should be doing in um, for our climate and we need to work very hard side by side and even health programs should have a component of climate change you know within that built-in
0: Absolutely, that's our reality going forward. So to end on a little bit more of a positive note, what advice would you give to young people starting out in the public health field?
1: I'll be very honest with them and I'll tell them that public health work requires dedication and passion. One has to leave the comfort zone and spend time in the field because unless you do that and get the firsthand experience, we can't do justice it requires an understanding family and their support because you have to travel. There's no shortcut to hard work and success, but one thing I can assure the young people, the satisfaction one gets in public health to serve the poor and marginalized, whether you're working at the grassroots level or you are at the policymaking level. It is very, very satisfying. Thank you, Dr. Nabila. Thank you, Amelia. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of We Lead, presented by Voices of Public Health, the JSI podcast. We'd love to know what you thought of today's conversation. Connect with us at JSI Health on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And share the episode if you liked what you heard. To learn more about JSI's work to improve health outcomes for all, visit our website at jsi.com.